Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities Outdoor Festival, postponed from January, takes place June 3rd through 5th. We're just looking forward to having people come out. It's a large parcel, 13 acres of land. We think that you can certainly social distance We'll discuss the state tree of Florida, the sable palm, also known as the cabbage palm. It generated decades of controversy and competing views on its place in the symbology of the state. And we'll talk about the historic fire truck, Old Betsy. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic are the musical headliners for the 33rd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, presented by the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community. From its beginning 33 years ago, the Zora Festival has been a multifaceted event with educational presentations and discussions, visual and performing arts components, and a three-day outdoor festival. While particular themes and topics change and specific offerings have adapted and evolved, the overall vision for this event, the essential concept of what the festival should be, has remained the same. Leading the team of presenters from day one, more than three decades ago, is N.Y. Nefiri. The goals of the festival remain to celebrate the life and work of the 20th century charismatic writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston to celebrate the historic significance of her hometown, which she has popularized around the world as the, quote, oldest incorporated African-American municipality in the United States, unquote, and to celebrate the cultural contributions of people of African ancestry to the United States and to the world. And what that means is just a wonderful opportunity year in and year out cycle in and cycle out to explore and engage our visitors, our guests, our friends, our interested parties, scholars, um, school children. We like to say that we attempt to program from the very, very young to the very, very old. And so, yes, you're right, within the context of those three goals, as Zora Neale Hurston might say, paraphrasing her, the world is our oyster. When most people think of the Zora Festival, it's probably the outdoor portion of the event that comes to mind first, with Education Day on Friday, June 3rd, 
Family Day on Saturday, June 4th, and a day of reflection on Sunday, June 5th. Longtime festival attendees need to be aware of a new location for the outdoor portion of the event this year. Absolutely. We are at what we are calling the Preserve in Eatonville. This is a, a natural habitat that is hiding in plain sight. In other words, as you drive west on West Kennedy Boulevard, leaving Eatonville, you might not expect, you might not expect to see at the intersection of West Kennedy and Lake Destiny Road and moving for about 13 acres west, there's a wooded area. But when you go into that wooded area, it's really, it's awe-inspiring because you see how the nature is represented. Uh, and I would uh, urge anyone who uh, has an opportunity to visit our website, zorafestival.org, and click on the vending button simply to get the overview of what that preserve looks like. Uh, you'll just see a kind of natural segmenting of the space. And, and we have followed that. We've actually followed that pattern in terms of where to place the, the children's activity, where to place the international food court, where to place the international marketplace, where to place the author's row. In addition, the preserve at Eatonville is a location for what was then called Tuxedo Junction, which is a place where Zora Neale Hurston actually was a, was a small dwelling there. And, and from time to time, she lived there and actually did some of her writing. So it's really, as I say, hidden in plain sight. Afrofuturism has been a prominent theme of recent Zora festivals. While it might be a stretch to directly connect Zora Neale Hurston with the largely science fiction and fantasy-based Afrofuturism, there is common ground there in a vision of what is possible for African Americans. And why theory? And you're exactly on point when you talk about Zora Neale Hurston and the possibilities. Now, I have learned this in working around and with the Afrofuturists. And in fact, I even asked the question about why so many of these scholars embrace Zora Neale Hurston. It's, it's quite something to see, but it's about the possibilities. It's about the fact that she had that mindset, that she had that creative. It's about the possibilities for people of African ancestry. And, and, and that's exactly right. Now, I should say that we have never felt that we were constrained or confined to only do themes where Zora Neale Hurston was the predominant, uh, how would you say, presence or factor or scholarship. We, we've named the festival in her honor, but there have been any number of cycles where she's not been in the forefront. The Afrofuturism cycle of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities began in 2020 and continues through 2024. The Zora Neale Hurston National Museum of Fine Arts in Eatonville has opened a year-long exhibit called Black Kirby, an Afrofuturist Vision. It's a series of graphic posters that is absolutely um, not only awe-inspiring, but uh, very engaging. We think that young people, people who are also young at heart, will really find um, this exhibition quite, quite compelling. And um, again, John Jennings and Stacey Robinson, who are the artists, 
uh, and Julian Chambliss, who has served as a curator of the exhibition. It's a magnificent vision. We have repainted the uh, museum walls to uh, reflect what is happening on the walls. So it's very, very exciting to have this as a, a year-long uh, exhibition. George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic, who helped pioneer the Afrofuturism aesthetic, will be performing at the Zora Festival on Saturday, June 4th. In 1997, the group was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and in 2019 earned the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. N.Y. Nathiri. The demographic that has jumped, I believe they said 40% was is 65 plus. Okay. And, and we smile because it's George Clinton, George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. We were told that we hit it out of the park when we were able to secure him because you're exactly right. It just lines up perfectly with the, the Apple Futurist theme. Other aspects of the 33rd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities include the Africa American Women's Economic Forum and Trade Expo, which helps to develop entrepreneurship, and cultural heritage tours of historic sites in Eatonville. As we look to utilize the past to prepare for the future, this whole business of how you see yourselves, how you can make certain that the vibrancy and the power of a, a community such as Eatonville, a historic black town, how we can uh, move into, move through the 21st century and into centuries subsequent, holding on to what is the essence of that town, what represents what we call the Eatonville Renaissance. And I, I can say to you as someone who works in the field and as an American patriot, I feel that Eatonville provides an opportunity for America to reimagine herself as a place in the world where everything is possible in terms of your individual initiative. With COVID still a concern, the Zora Festival is working to provide as safe an experience as possible. We're doing everything that we possibly can to be certain that we are providing a safe environment. There will be sanitizers. And even as we're at the outdoor festival, you know, and that hopefully is an environment that is more likely to be safe than indoors if we're going to have that kind of threat. Uh, we're just uh, looking forward to having people come out. It's a large parcel, 13 acres of land. We think that you can certainly social distance well. And of course, I should say that all of this you can find at ZoraFestival.org. NY Nathiri is executive director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, presenters of the 33rd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. For more information about the life and career of Zora Neale Hurston, go to myfloridahistory.org and find Florida Frontiers Television Episode 6, The Lost Years of Zora Neale Hurston. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, environmental history has become a staple in the course offerings of most universities, but students still anticipate a course in which humans are at the center of the analysis, right? Yes, they're sometimes surprised to encounter histories that are written from the perspective of other living beings, and in some cases, from non-living entities. As examples, a frequently assigned article focuses on the history of the beaver and its environmental impact, and a well-known book puts coal and coal mining at the center of its research. The Florida Historical Quarterly recently published an article by John O'Miller in which the sable, or cabbage palm, played the central role. In this case, it generated decades of controversy and competing views on its place in the symbology of the state, particularly the official seal of the state of Florida. Miller went on to publish a book in 2021 titled The Palmetto Book, Histories and Mysteries of the Cabbage Palm. The book provides 25 stories in which the cabbage palm occupies center stage. The stories are entertaining and informative, providing a different perspective on our history over the course of centuries of human interaction with the plant. And the quarterly article is different from the stories that appear in the book, right? Of course. As Miller notes, every state has both an official seal and an official state tree, although the U.S. Constitution does not require either. Embossed state seals are attached to government documents, lending an official imprimatur beyond the appropriate signatures. Official state trees, like other such designations that can include flowers, songs, food, birds, animals, and so forth, often reflect the preferences or politics of the moment, and most states have several in each category. Initially, schoolchildren were involved in making the nominations, but today the additions are more likely based on cultural changes of the moment. Florida has had a succession of seals that reflected the political changes the state underwent over time, including the 1810 seal of the Republic of West Florida, the seals of Territorial Florida in 1822, statehood in 1846, and the Confederacy in 1861. In 1868, during the Reconstruction period, the state legislature established the size and elements for all future renditions of the state seal. It would be a seal the size of the American silver dollar, having in the center thereof a view of the sun's rays over a high land in the distance, a cocoa tree, a steamboat on water, and an Indian female scattering flowers in the foreground, encircled by the words, Great Seal of the State of Florida, in God We Trust. 
If the legislation seemed to settle the issue of the appearance of the seal, no one had contemplated the next century plus of objections to the rendering of specific elements and the fierce debate over the issue of cocoa palm versus cabbage palm. Why did the rendering of the seal require such a long period to resolve? Of course, it was not a point of discussion continuously. Periodically, legislators returned to the seal to make changes. In the several renditions that followed, the highland, which included mountains, was changed to reflect a more realistic Florida landscape. The Indian feather headdress was removed, and the length of the skirt for the female figure was altered. And there were several renditions of the steamboat. Beginning in the 1830s, Florida garden clubs mounted a campaign to name the cabbage palm as the state tree, arguing that it was an indigenous plant and ubiquitous in the Florida landscape. It wasn't until 1953, however, that the state designated the cabbage palm as the state tree. Now the debate shifted to the state seal. If the cabbage palm was the state tree, it should be included in the seal and the cocoa palm removed. In 1970, the state legislature voted to change the tree on the seal to the sable or cabbage palm, but it would be another 15 years before the change was made in 1985. An interesting story. What else can you tell us about Florida's cabbage palm? Having introduced quarterly readers to the role of the cabbage palm in state history, Miller's subsequent book provides a wealth of information about the centrality of the cabbage palm to Florida's past and present, starting with a fossilized sable palm leaf in the Florida Museum of Natural History that is between 16 and 18 million years old. Though difficult to harvest, it is ruinous on saw blades. Cabbage palm houses exist, and Miller cites two in Volusia County. In Florida's industrial history, cabbage palms provided bristles for brushes until replaced with nylon bristles. Drawings of cabbage palms appear in the notebooks of Audubon and John Muir, Winslow Homer's paintings, The White Rowboat and The Turkey Buzzard, and works by Herman Herzog, John Singer Sanger, and N.C. Wythe include depictions of cabbage palms. Finally, Florida tourism used the cabbage palm in marketing campaigns, including the iconic image of the lucky palm at Silver Springs. Although Stetson Kennedy introduced his book, Palmetto Country, with the following quote, it seems a fitting ending for this discussion on the sable palm. An old-timer once described it in these glowing terms. I tell you there's no tree like the cabbage palm. It never dies of old age, and you can't see the end of it, lessen you cut it down. The sun can't wither it, fire can't burn it, and moss can't cling to it. Have you seen one bend before the wind, laying all its fans out straight, and just give so's the wind can't find nothing to take hold of? I pass a beautiful wild sable palm on my way to the university every day, I've always admired it, but now I will give it more respect. Great. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Thank you.
This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. She has this look at the historic fire truck, Old Betsy. Earl Midlam is a lifelong resident of Venice, Florida, as well as a former vice mayor and a three-term city councilman. For many years, he's been one of the main caretakers for Venice's first fire truck, Old Betsy, a 1926 American LaFrance. Old Betsy was delivered to Moorhaven, Florida the first week of September 1926. It came in by train from Elmira, New York. It was only there uh, not even 24 hours and they had a newspaper burned down. And of course, they hadn't even trained with the truck, so they lost the newspaper back in 1926. And less than two weeks later, the Great Miami Hurricane came in. They killed thousands of people. There was no dike around Lake Okeechobee. So the water was pushed over the banks. The truck had 15 foot of water on top of it. The truck was only there from September to November 4th. The town was destroyed. The truck was used after the hurricane to carry bodies from the fields because everything else was destroyed to burning pits so they could burn the bodies of the people who had drowned. The 1926 fire truck known as Old Betsy is even older than the city of Venice, which was incorporated in 1927. Until 1949, Old Betsy was the only fire truck and covered an area from Inglewood to Gulfgate. So the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers, they're the ones who founded the city of Venice, Florida, purchased it from the American LaFrance Fire Company in Amira, New York. So they went over and picked it up and brought it to Venice on November 4th of 1926, that's before the city was incorporated. It was a union that decided to build a, a community on the west coast of Florida and uh, on the city of Venice, which was right on the Gulf. They got the truck, brought it over, put it right in the service. Old Betsy has had several good visitors like Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison sat on it in January 1927. The Brotherhood was trying to lure him to Venice. All we had was a couple of hotels that they built in less than a year. Even though she's resided in Venice for most of her life, old Betsy has never had a permanent home. Earl Midlam, his wife Karen, Venice Heritage Inc., and other community partners are working to raise funds to house old Betsy in a display building on the Venice Cultural Campus. I've had a great opportunity for over 50 years to take care of her. I've even taken it to Edison's birthday party in Fort Myers six times, drove it down and back. We've taken it across the Skyway to St. Petersburg. She's won trophies. She's served us quite well. She's our city's ambassador now. I think every child has either pulled on the, the bell, rang the bell, or had her picture taken with it. Kids don't crawl on it. We have it with a staunchness around the truck. But a lot of people love to have their photograph taken with it. In parades, they love to wave at her. We're in the process of putting a new building up for her, which will be by our community center, our archives, so Old Betsy will have a place that will be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It will be all glass on one side so people can sit in an enclosed area on benches and we'll see her. And she'll be lit up. And we can still get the truck in and out because when you're approaching 100 years old, you never know when something's going to break. Old Betsy's 100th birthday is coming up in just a few short years. Thanks to Earl Midlam and other devoted caretakers, the fire truck is in mint condition and ready to celebrate. In 2011, 
I raised $31,000 in one month, thanks to my wife and some other volunteers. And I took it to Daytona Beach, Florida, to the Florida Prison Service, program called Pride over there. And we had 30 and 40 a day working on it. Took it over on December 15th, had it back on Valentine's Day. They stripped it right to the frame. It's only had four sets of tires in 100 years. That's not bad. The truck still pumps. We try to pump with it at least once a year. And people love to see water come out of it. We re-chromed it, redid all the leather seats. We have all the original hardware for it. We've had it reappraised, insurance purposes. It's owned by the city of Venice. And I was very fortunate to be a city commissioner and former vice mayor of the city. So uh, I had a little bit of say in it. But the truck, we've had it, uh, the soda celebration, Bradenton, Inglewood, Northport, we've had it everywhere. We've even had three different governors on it. Porter Goss, who was the drug czar for the United States, has been on it. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Vern Buchanan, congressman, and uh, former governor Bob Graham. So she's carried a lot of dignitaries through the years. Since 1926, Old Betsy has been in service to her community. During the last almost 100 years, there's no telling how many people have had their photograph taken with her or have taken a photograph of her. Earl Midlam hopes there's still some photographs out there yet to be discovered, perhaps in a long-forgotten album, in a closet, an attic, or in an archive. We're still looking for more photographs. We've checked the archives. Somewhere out there, I'm going to ask the citizens, if, especially around Lake Okeechobee, Palm Beach, Anybody has a photograph of Moorhaven receiving a fire truck on September, first week of September, 1926. We've checked everywhere. And of course, the American LaFrance Fire Company went out of business. So they don't have anything. But we do have the records that when it was sent from Amira, New York, to Moorhaven, we got it, the records when it was sent to Venice. And we already know some of the people went and got it in 1926 and brought it to Venice. I got a gentleman, his daddy was police chief, fire chief, and public works director. He's in his 90s. He drove the truck when he was 15. So it means something to them. To learn more about Old Betsy, the 1926 American LaFrance fire truck, and to find out how to give a tax-deductible donation for her permanent home and future maintenance, go to veniceheritage.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, explore all the great content on our website at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida, 
It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.